Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we're going to read together from verses 1 through to 31. Acts chapter 4. This is God's rich and holy word. And as they, that is Peter and John and the apostles, were speaking to the people, the priests, And the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had sent them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, And elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This, Jesus, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them, to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So far we read, we thank God for his word. What is the greatest privilege you have ever had in your life? What's the greatest privilege you've had? I suppose if you were to ask people out on the street, maybe they would say to you, well, the greatest privilege they've had is, is perhaps meeting someone very famous, someone very important, or spending time with a with a celebrity. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, Joel and I were, were given uh, tickets to, to go to what we call the Place of Tears, the Valley of Tears, Selhurst Park, to watch Crystal Palace lose another game. Uh, and after the match, Joel, all he wanted to do was meet the players. To him, he couldn't wait. He said it was, was the greatest day of his life because he got to meet Luka Milivojevic and Joel Ward and Patrick van Arnholt. For him it was a great privilege. We might say, well, maybe our greatest privilege was that we, we, we had the honor of playing a, a role in an important event. I suppose if you were to speak to an athlete or a sports person, they would say, well, the greatest privilege was representing their country. If you asked to Ask an actor, they would say, well, the greatest privilege would be nominated by their fellow actors to receive a, an Academy Award, an Oscar. And for some in our country, they would say, well, the greatest privilege they've ever had was receiving honors from the Queen, an OBE or an MBE or maybe even a, a knighthood. Well, what's the greatest privilege you've had in your life? Let me add slightly to that question. What is the greatest privilege that we as believers in Jesus Christ have in this life? I believe that God has given all believers the greatest privilege in the world. And yet, I'm also convinced that this is a privilege that firstly we don't even see it as a privilege. And secondly, as a result of it, we greatly neglect that privilege we are given. This evening we've read from Acts 4. Uh, when it comes to the book of Acts, I think most of us as Christians have a, uh, the same sort of response, a response of mixed emotions. Acts is, is a riveting book. A few of us would struggle to read the book because it, it's so compelling. There's a movement, there's an excitement uh, about the book. There it records for us the establishment and, and the explosive growth of, of the early church. There's a life about the book. You can sort of feel the vitality and the love, the joy, the, the unity of the church and the, and the power of God's spirit at work in, in the lives of so many people. 
there's a sense of, of urgency as the church continues on, but, but also a sense of, of earnestness and zealousness. Because even when persecution comes, they just, they just carry on. It doesn't stop after Stephen is stoned. It doesn't stop after James is beheaded. It doesn't stop after Paul is imprisoned. Just, they just keep on going and keep on going. And we find it a compelling, a, a riveting, an exciting book. But we also find it difficult to read because it prompts us to start asking questions about ourselves and about the church of today. Because why, why does that vitality that seems so, so evident in, in the church and acts and this rich sense of life and love and, and unity, why does that seem so far from, from our experience of church? The sense of, of urgent zealousness to, to proclaim Christ, to make him known no matter what the cost is, that, that seems to have evaporated. Why was the, the gospel work within the early church so compelling? Its growth incredible and, and diverse, and it, it was unstoppable. Why is there such a disparity? What has gone wrong is generally what we find ourselves asking. What's gone wrong? Why is the church of Acts 4 and the church in 2020 so different? Do, do they have something we didn't have? Maybe they were living in a golden age when just everybody was, was open to hearing about Jesus and, and it was easy for them to, to preach the gospel. We live in a time of complacency and indifference and arrogance and pride and intellectualism. Maybe they didn't have those battles that, that we have. Maybe, maybe it was easier for them. What did they have? Well, I believe that we see the answer to this in Acts 4. And we shall see that it lies in the fact that they understood the great privilege that they had been given. And it was the joy and the delight of their lives to carry it out. And Acts 4 records for us the first occasion on which the apostles, and in particular Peter and John, are, are arrested, are imprisoned and placed on trial. In the context of this, you can read it in Acts 3. Uh, Peter and John were on their way to the temple to meet with their fellow believers in the temple courts. As they approached the gates of the temple, a, a lame beggar cries out asking for, for money. Uh, and Peter and John respond by pointing this man to someone far greater. Someone who can give him much more than gold or silver. They point him to the living God. They point him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God in his wonderful mercy and power works through the apostles and this man is, is healed and, and therefore he immediately responds by rejoicing in God for this miraculous healing and, and he, you can almost picture him sort of running and skipping and leaping through the temple court, something he's never done before and everybody's sort of taking a double take. Hold on, isn't that the man that's been sitting at the temple gates, lame? For all this time, and of course that creates a commotion, and, and everybody comes, what's going on, what's all this fuss about, and, and, and a wonderful gospel opportunity is presented to the apostles. They stand up, and they declare the gospel. But what is interesting to note is the reason that we are given as to why the apostles are arrested. They are not arrested for healing the man. They are not arrested for causing a commotion within the temple courts. What they are arrested for is for preaching the gospel, proclaiming in Christ the resurrection from the dead. So that's exactly what we're told in these opening verses. And as they were speaking in the 
to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They are arrested for proclaiming Christ as Lord, Christ risen from the dead, Christ the only hope of salvation for all who would believe. The following day, they're they're placed on trial before the Sanhedrin. Again, we we need to to pay attention here. Who who are these men, the Sanhedrin? Well, they are the same men who just probably about three months prior to this condemned Jesus to be crucified. It's the same court. It's the same group of men. So these men are not afraid to kill. They're not afraid to send a man to his death simply because they disagree with him. They're not afraid to misuse and abuse their power and bend and twist and manipulate the law so as to have their way. They are not afraid to kill. These are not men you want to trifle with. These are not men you want to to offend. Because if they disagree with you, if they dislike, If you offend them, if you threaten their positions, they will kill you. When you consider who these men are, the response of the apostles to the questioning of the Sanhedrin is stunning. I mean, what's the worst thing that the apostles could do when being questioned by the Sanhedrin as to why they're doing this? What's the one thing, if you were their legal counsel, What was the one thing that you would say to John and to Peter, do not do? You would say to John and Peter, don't preach the gospel. These men sent Jesus to be crucified. The last thing you should mention is the word Jesus. What do Peter and John do? They preach the gospel. They tell the very men who crucified Christ, about how Jesus is the only hope of salvation. These men who had Christ crucified, they're saying, the man that you had crucified, he was no ordinary man. No, he's the promised Messiah. They go even further than that. They say, he is the only Savior. There is salvation in no other name than Jesus. They're saying to the Sanhedrin, Jesus is your only hope of right standing with God. He's the only hope of salvation you have, if you don't have Jesus, you are, you will not know God's favor. Your boldness is, it's, it's remarkable. And the thing is that this isn't just a, a once-off thing, this boldness. Because their response to the ruling of, of the council shows a similar boldness. They're ordered to not preach or teach about Jesus at all. Essentially, stop this whole church thing. Put put an end to it all. Do so immediately under pain of further and harsher punishment if they fail to abide by this ruling. Peter and John respond by saying those words we know so well. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Remarkable boldness. Now, we all know it's, it's one thing to, to say something. It's a different thing to actually do it. 
So, so we're John and Peter just caught up in the moment, you know, the adrenaline of it all. They sort of punch drunk with excitement over all that happened, that it gave them a sense of false courage. Well, not at all. Because, well, what do we see happening after this? Well, we see they, they return to their fellow believers, they immediately go to God in prayer, but what are they praying for? They're pleading for safety or protection, for comfort or for ease. Are they praying that the authorities might back off and just give them free license to, to preach? Are they praying for God to deliver them out of the situation? Is it a prayer of, of self-preservation? Not at all. They're praying for increased boldness, increased resolve, increased zeal for God to work in even clearer and more spectacular ways so that more and more people might come to see and hear and know who Jesus Christ is. Again, listen to their prayer. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders and are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This prayer is, is followed by action. Because having prayed, they then go and do what they've just prayed. They go and proclaim the gospel. They go and carry on doing the thing that they got arrested for. They are the offenders. Verse 31, and they prayed, and the place in which they gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They continued to proclaim Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the forgiveness of sins, the salvation, and the eternal life to be found in him and him alone. And what is more is that they continued to do this work for the rest of their lives, as the, as the book of Acts records for us. Each of the apostles spent themselves for the cause of Christ and his gospel. They traveled over land and sea to make Christ known, and, and even when persecution arose, they continued undeterred in this work. When Stephen was stoned, they preached the gospel. When James was beheaded, they preached the gospel. When Paul was thrown out of Philippi, he went to preach in Thessalonica. When he was chased out of Thessalonica, he went to Berea and preached the gospel in Berea. When he was chased out of Berea, he went to Athens and preached the gospel. He preached when he was in the synagogue, in the marketplace, in city squares, by rivers, on beaches, in royal courts, on, on ships, under house arrest, and in prison cells. No matter what you tried to do to these men, you could not keep them silent. They would not stop talking about what they had seen and heard in Jesus Christ. They would not stop. And it wasn't just the apostles. There were countless other men and women who did likewise, because we read about them in the book of Acts. Barnabas, Silas, Luke, Mark, Timothy, Titus, Apollos, Aquila, Priscilla, later on Jude and James, the brother of Jesus, just to name a few. You, you read all of those greetings that Paul gives at the end of his letters, and so many of them he speaks as being fellow servants and co-laborers to join in with him in this work of making Christ known. And by the time we reach the end of the book of Acts, and Acts doesn't cover a large period of time, perhaps 30 to 40 years at the most, the gospel has traveled thousands of miles through countless cities, towns, and villages. Numerous churches have, have been planted and established. The church has gone from an Acts 1, numbering about 120, 
to now probably numbering tens and tens of thousands. There's a vitality, a deep driving joy, an earnest zeal about the proclaiming of the gospel. So that presents us with the all-important question then, why? Why is this so? What was it that caused him to have such a passion, such a deep desire to proclaim Christ openly and boldly, zealously, unflinchingly, wherever they were, to whomever would listen? What would cause him to travel over land and sea, to foreign lands, to, 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 to dangerous places, to young and old, to rich and poor, to the religious philosophers of Mars Hill, to the slaves in Philippi, to the prostitutes in Corinth? What was it? Well, the answer, what they had, what they motivated them, what compelled and propelled them, well, it's seen in our passage tonight, particularly in verses 12 and verse 20. In verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. And then verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. See, these believers had grasped perhaps to a greater extent and a greater appreciation than we do, what the life, death, and and most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ meant for them. And not just for them, but for all of humanity. In Jesus, they have come to see and hear and know of the most incredible, life-changing, eternity-altering truth. And the fact that he had risen from the dead meant to them that this wasn't just a nice story that Jesus had told them. That all the promises that he made were not just a bunch of pie-crust promises. It was true. Everything he claimed to be, everything he promised to be, it was true. He really was God in flesh. He really was the way, the truth, and the life. He really is the Savior. He really is the only hope of salvation. And such was their joy at the reality of this, at understanding this and and knowing it to be true for themselves, that they could not contain it. They could not keep it to themselves. They had to proclaim it. They had to declare it. It would be irresponsible not to do so. It would be unloving not to do so, never mind disobeying the direct commands of Christ not to do so. They had seen And they had heard, and they had come to know that Jesus was the only means of salvation. They appreciated the fact that apart from Christ, men and women will perish in their sins and face the eternal, utterly terrifying judgment and condemnation and punishment of God in hell. And therefore it was their great joy and their great privilege to go and to declare to to all and to any who would listen, You no longer need to die in your sins. God has opened the way of of salvation for you. You you can live. You don't have to die. They understood what a joy and a privilege it was to be Christ's ambassador. God's messengers. Heralds of good news. Proclaiming eternal life and peace with God. And so wherever they went... And whatever they were doing, they were always speaking about Jesus. Well, this, for the believers in Christ, is our great privilege. We get to be Christ's ambassadors. 
We get to be messengers that bring good news. Like those angels on that, that night of Christ. Behold, we come and bring you, you good news of great joy. That's, that's our privilege now. But do we see that as a privilege? Maybe along the way we've lost the wonder of what we've seen and heard in regards to Jesus. Maybe we've lost the sheer wonder and magnitude of Christ's work, his death and his resurrection. Maybe it's too well known to us. Maybe it's become so common. It's come to us easily. Maybe it's because we've never really understood just how utterly lost we were without Christ. Which means we've never been absolutely amazed by his grace. Maybe we suffer from that same hardness of heart as Simon, that Jewish religious authority who loved little because he thought that he had only been forgiven little. Maybe because it's, it's, we've taken so little time to actually think upon and, and meditate upon the gospel and, and to meditate on, on God's grace and just the, the wonder of what he has done for us in Christ. Well, whatever the reason may be, the fact remains that it is for us who are, are true believers in Christ, our privilege to make Christ known. And truly, there can be no greater privilege. There can be no greater work to which we can, we can give our lives and spend our lives and spend our resources on than proclaiming what we have seen and heard in Jesus Christ, what we know to be true in the gospel, what we know God has done in, in our lives and what we know that God can do in the lives of countless others through Jesus Christ. Surely we couldn't ask for a greater privilege than heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. The present moment, our world is facing a crisis. One that threatens to become a global epidemic. The coronavirus. It has moved at such a frightening speed we didn't know about this virus six weeks ago. I've never heard of it. Now it has claimed hundreds of lives. It has affected thousands and thousands, and it is spreading around the globe. Our fears abound. How much is this virus actually going to spread? How far is it going to reach? How many more people will, will, will die from it? How long is it going to take them to, to find a, a cure and, and a vaccine? And you think about us here in London, we're, well, we're probably in the worst place in that respect because of, of all the amount of people that travel in and out of the city. I think as a minister, how many hands do I shake on a Sunday? I, I'm, I'm susceptible to it. All these fears abound. How bad is it going to get? How long will it be before they find a cure? How many more are going to die? Well, imagine for a moment that you're a medical research scientist and you're part of the team that has now been, been urgently tasked with, with finding a cure and a vaccine for the coronavirus. And you return to work tomorrow morning you take out the samples and the tests that you ran on, on Friday, left them for the weekend just to, to observe what, what's happened to them over the weekend. You look through your microscope and you're astounded 
by what you see. Because the sample that was riddled with the virus on Friday is now completely clear. There's nothing but healthy cells in there. You make sure you sort of rub your eyes, clean your microscope. Am I, am I seeing correctly here? You look again, yeah, I am. You call your colleague over, have a look through. Am I, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And they say, yeah, yeah, I, I see what you see. So we'll repeat the test. Repeat what I did on, on Friday. Let's see if, if, if this comes out the same. And, and their test comes out with the same result. And you repeat it a number of times just to make sure you, you, haven't, you haven't messed it up. You haven't missed something. And suddenly it, it dawns upon you that there you are holding in your hands the cure to the coronavirus. What do you do next? You say, good work, chaps. Fancy a drink down at the pub. Let's go home. Of course not. You know that, that at that very moment, people are dying and, and more people are, are being infected. So, so what would you do? Well, you would call every pharmaceutical company you could. You would call the Minister of Health you would call the WHO, you would call the press, you would call every news station, and you would let everybody know there is a cure for the coronavirus. People no longer need to die from this virus. And it's freely available. You'd be on the first flight to China where this vaccine is, where this cure is needed most. And if a work colleague were to come up to you and say, are you sure you want to go public with this? Are you sure you want to go to China? I mean, China. That's not really safe. You know, you're a Westerner. You're an outsider there. It's going to be difficult to get through the border. It's going to cost you a lot of money to you know, get a ticket at the last minute. And, well, they might not believe you and they might call the authorities on you. I mean, it's China. What would you say to them? Say, are you mad? This is the cure. People are dying right now. I don't care if it's far away. I don't care if it costs me a lot of money. I don't care if they, if they put me in the hands of their authorities. This is the cure. It would be inhumane. It would be barbaric. It would be cruel of me not to make every effort to get this cure into the hands of the people who need it most. This is a matter of life and death, friend. As much as we pray for a cure and a vaccine to be found for this virus, as believers in Jesus Christ, don't we have something far, far greater? The gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the truth is that even those who recover from or are cured from the coronavirus, they, like us, will die one day. Whether it be from another illness or an accident or, or old age, death and judgment are inevitable. Yet as believers, when we hold the Bible in our hands, we are holding the cure. We're holding that which can bring the dead to life, the condemned into freedom, those in darkness into light, those under the curse into blessing. When we, when we have in our hands the gospel, we are holding that which is the power of God unto salvation for all humanity. It's the only means of salvation that God has appointed for every tribe, for every tongue, for every nation. So the question is, how can we then remain quiet with it? How, 
How can we keep it to ourselves? How can we say, and we love to say, the gospel is good news, and yet not share it with anybody? We all love to share good news, but when it comes to the good news of God's word, we seem not to share it. I'm not saying that we all need to jump on the next plane to China or to the far-flung corners of the world. What I'm saying is that we should be doing exactly what the apostles and the early church did. And that was to just constantly testify to what they had seen and heard about Jesus Christ, his person and his work, and the fact that salvation can be found in no other place than in him. I don't think any of those men set out to travel the globe. I don't think any of them realized how far this gospel work would take them. They just simply said, we cannot help but to speak about what we have seen and heard. And so wherever we go, whatever we do, we will speak about it. It is our great privilege to tell people of this remarkable salvation that can be theirs. And so as they looked around them and saw those around them lost in their sin, they knew that God had given them this wonderful privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And they had the privilege of witnessing God save and redeem people. Isn't that incredible? You know, think, think about that. God uses lonely people like you and me, and, and we all know our faults and our shortcomings and our imperfections. But God takes 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 us and and uses us to tell another person of his eternal love for them and and how that has been revealed to them through Jesus Christ. And then through those simple words, perhaps even through a gospel presentation that you and I have stumbled and fumbled our way through and got all our Bible references wrong, God works. And he redeems a person. And we see that veil removed from their eyes. And we see them come to repentance and faith and and find that joy that comes with new birth. And and God says, I want to do that work through you. I'm giving you that privilege. I'm making you my gospel ambassador, my herald of good news. I will use you as a means of my grace to redeem another person. What a privilege. What a privilege. We look at the book of Acts. We look at the lives of the apostles. We look at the lives of great men and women of church history. We look at the lives of the great women and men of the modern missionary movement. And we marvel at them. And we wonder how they did what they did and how God worked so wonderfully through them. And we think maybe they, they must have had something we don't have. A special ability or a gifting, a, a special dose of grace, a special anointing of God's spirit. But is, they're no different to us. They would tell you, I just, I cannot help but speak of of what I have seen Christ do in my own heart and life. And I want to tell you what he can do for you. So it's it's not because I have anything great. It's not because I have a, a supernatural bravery. No, it's because all I want to do is tell others of what Christ has done. They understood, they realized the incredible love and grace of God. 
that is offered to all who would believe. Yeah, some of them went to the corners of the earth. The Careys, the Hudson Taylors, the Judsons and the such. But there are countless others who did it right where they were. And it was their joy and their delight and the privilege of their lives to give themselves to. And so the challenge comes to us this evening to respond to the great salvation that we have received through Christ. To count it our greatest privilege to testify to what Christ has done. To say to all of those around us, come and see what the Lord has done for me. Those parables that Jesus tells about the the shepherd who lost one of his sheep and then he calls all his friends, about the woman who lost one of her coins and calls all her friends. Come and see, come and see. Let me tell you what the Lord has done. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but now I have been made alive. Come and see, come and hear, come and know what can be yours in Christ. I want to leave this question with you. Is there anything greater? Is there anything more worthy? Is there anything more worthwhile that you could give your life for? That you could spend your life on? That you could use your energies or resources for? Is there anything greater or more worthy than to declare the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the eternal life that is to be found in him. Is there anything greater? This is our great privilege. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, I'm conscious that even as I speak these words, my own cowardice convicts me. Because Father, I know that there are times, even in my own life, where I'm just tempted to be quiet. I'm afraid of what someone else might think. And how, how sad it is that, that, that I'd willingly talk to somebody about a sporting event, a total stranger about some random thing that is petty and trivial by comparison and yet not tell them of the eternal life can be theirs. Not tell them of Jesus Christ. The eternal love of God for them. So Father, forgive me for my own failure to to take up this great privilege. And Father, help us to understand what it means to be redeemed by Christ. Help us to meditate upon the riches of the salvation that we have received. And then help us to think upon the great privilege and the high calling that we have been given to be God's ambassadors, messengers of good news, heralds of Christ, through those through whom you are making your appeal. And Father, may we count it pure joy, pure joy, declare Christ to whomever may be around us whatever we might be doing and Father as we go out into this new week we're going to be surrounded every day by people 
who do not know Christ. So Father, give us that zeal, give us that desire, give us that joy to be faithful messengers and ambassadors for Christ this week. In whose name we pray. Amen.